Brian Holiday is one of the most interesting marketers out there. At 19, he dropped out of college to become director of marketing at American Apparel. He's since written three books, one of them being Growth Hacker Marketing. He's become editor-at-large of the New York Observer, and he's also advised clients such as Robert Greene, Tim Ferriss, 50 Cent, and more. We discuss Ryan's writing process, why he reads so much, what the media landscape looks like today, how he thinks about friendship, why he lives in Austin, and much more. All right, here's Ryan. You launched Growth Hacker Marketing, uh, what, about a year ago? Yeah, almost exactly a year ago. I think it was September 1st. Growth Hacker Marketing. What encouraged you to, to re-release an extended version? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. The book sort of became um, an experiment or example of Growth Hacking. Yeah, so it came out in, first I wrote an art, I sort of see the minimum viable product as the book as an article that I wrote in Fast Company in early 2013. Uh, and then from there, my publisher approached me and said, hey, you know, we think this is good. Clearly it did really well. What would you think about doing an ebook about it? So I did a, a very short, you know, ten thousand word ebook. Uh, it came out, you know, about maybe six months after the sort of whole discussion uh, about the article happened, and we wanted to price it really cheaply to see how it would do if people would respond. The book ended up doing really, really well. Sold way more copies than we thought. And then, so the next, you know, sort of the next step in the book publishing process is. Let's do an expanded physical and digital and audiobook version. And so that's what I've been working on the last few months. And then that comes out uh, September 30th. It's, it's revised and expanded, you know, more case studies, more examples. Um, so I talk about sort of the, the case study of the book itself. And, uh, you know, it, all in all, it's a much more efficient process than how publishing normally works, which is someone has an idea for a book. They sell a proposal for that book for six figures. Then they go see if they can produce a good book. And then a year to two years later, it finally comes out. Um, and you just kind of hope that it's magically going to be successful. You know, we're fairly confident the paperback of the book is going to be a success because we've already sold tens of thousands of copies of the ebook. And I have an email list that I built of those readers. So do you think that more authors in the future are going to kind of take this approach of MVPs to the books by perhaps writing them as in blog posts or articles just to, to gauge? Yeah, I mean, look, when, when I look at my most successful author clients, they all tend to have one thing in common, which is that they spent a lot of time thinking about marketing and the audience before they started writing the book. Mm -hmm. And publishing is not really designed to do that. But this idea of, you know, sort of starting very small testing and then iteratively growing the product based on feedback is something that publishing is publishing can do it's just sort of antithetical to its dna so i'm hoping you know this success sends some message in that regard and i would have much rather failed smaller than spent you know years of my life working on this book really marketing the shit out of it i'm right. sorry i don't know if i'm allowed to say yeah, really marketing <laughs> very very hard and then finding out, like, hey, there's not an audience for it. This being an unexpected hit was, you know, a much more pleasant experience than it being a surprising failure. And so you also had uh, a special contest for this book, right? Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it was really cool. I got the publisher to there. I was like, look, you're doing this whole thing totally different than you ever have. Let's Let's think about this much more differently. So one of the things we're doing is, Basically, I said, okay, what's the marketing budget for the book? And, you know, they said it's, let's say we'll spend $10,000. So we, we thought, 
well, what if we use, because I end the book with, okay, you've decided to become a growth hacker, you, you're interested in this, how do you actually learn the tactical sort of day-to-day elements of, of, of the profession? Because the, the book is very much a high-level sort of strategic or philosophical um, approach to the, to the concept. And so, you know, the next thing to do is to actually learn growth hacking from someone who's done it. And so I wanted to give a young person or a, a person who sort of read the book and was influenced by a chance to put the theories into practice. So I'm doing a bunch of different stuff with it with a young guy. His name is William. Um, and I, I'm sort of letting him play in a sandbox that otherwise he wouldn't be able to do. And, and then I'll do a big case study on the results and, and hopefully it'll sort of show people, you know, another facet of how my, my theory is like, look, book marketing is very different and very old school. And so if you can apply growth hacking to that, if you can apply these sort of scalable, trackable, you know, bootstrapping strategies, then you can pretty much apply it to anything. Mm -hmm. Are you allowed to talk about some of the ideas that William or some of the other people submitted uh, as an application? Yeah, Yeah, it was funny. Almost all the the submissions I had to toss, 90% of the applications because they just didn't follow the instructions. And I even said like, literally like follow these instructions as literally as humanly possible because to me it's usually a sign uh, of attention to detail so if these people can't follow my instructions in an application they're not going to listen to me when I ask them to do something on a specific project so most of the ideas weren't that good um, but I had one really good idea from this this guy named William which is he wanted to market the book to people who influence other influencers on Twitter. So he came up with this algorithm that scrapes Twitter that showed people who have low amounts of followers but are followed by more than one person with lots of followers. And like this was all sketched out. And actually, I don't think we're going to do that idea, but I really like the thinking behind the idea, um, which is all I was really looking for. So the, the idea we're doing with, with Will now is, is to students. So we're doing this thing where if you're a student, you can verify that you are taking any number of these sort of marketing classes at a, at a university. I'll send you a copy of the book for free. You just have to fill out this form. And then the form has a bunch of viral elements designed to make it spread from there. So um, we're, it, it launched today, I think, and we've already seen it, it sort of get passed from university to university, and we're watching the sort of the emails and the users roll in. And marketing a book is really about getting the first, you know, ten, like they say, the first 10,000 co- copies in people's hands. I already did that with the ebook, so I'm just thinking about, all right, what is another niche that I really want to dominate? And that's young people who are thinking about marketing. Um, and, and hopefully this book will sort of become a definitive text with them. And I'll be able to apply all the growth hacking strategies to these people because I've actually locked them up, you know, sort of through my email list and through this sign up process rather than, you know, like handing out copies for free at a campus or something. Mm-hmm. So what would be some of the, you know, I know this is simplifying, but some of the biggest things you, you would tell us, you know, we've had a few growth hacking books on, on Product Hunt. Uh, yeah. p- people, you know, who know, looking to write those types of books to, to an entrepreneurial audience. Yeah, so look, I think one of the problems that I saw in, the, in, in this space with people writing about growth hacking, and I think that's why mine is, is done really well comparatively, is that they are obsessed with tactical stuff. And, they are, and you have to understand books are about big ideas. I take a book away with me when I'm traveling, when I go on vacation, when I'm sitting on the train. I don't want specific things that I have to write down. I want to have my mind expanded and my approach widened. And so selling people on the approach 
and, and the mindset is a much bigger audience that comes before the smaller tactical audience. So I think a lot of people when they're writing books, they write books for themselves exclusively or people just like them, and they don't actually do the math on how big or small a niche that is. So when, when I really try to think about the audience for my book, and I saw that, like, look, people who know what growth hacking is, that's a fairly small niche. People who are in marketing, that's an enormous niche. But they both can benefit from learning from each other. And so I tried to write a book that makes growth hacking accessible to people who are good at marketing or who are trying to be good at marketing rather than competing in a, a rather red ocean, which is, you know, trying to go head to head with Andrew Chen or, or Aaron Kim right. or any of these other people. I think what's interesting about your work is that you not only write good stuff, you also write, you know, good books, but you also write prolific in terms of, in terms of your article output. How do you yeah. man- manage your kind of almost psychology as a writer? Like, do you think I write this, this should be five separate articles or, you know, I want to write these amount of books over a lifetime. So I don't want to say too much right now. Or how do you think about this? No, I mean, mean, look, I try to get up every day and write. Mm -hmm. And some of that writing is going to go in books and some of that writing is going to go in articles. Um, I try to write at least one to two articles every single week. And so having that commitment, having something that I have to deliver, in some cases that I'm contractually obligated to, it forces me to think in terms of those deadlines. And I also have a book contract, so I have to think in terms of that deadline too. So it's not like I'm just churning stuff out because... That's the, you know, cart I've chained myself to. It's about creating sort of short-term and long-term goals that you have to sit down and meet. If you just say, I want to be a writer, I want to write, well, writing is really hard and it's really discouraging. And chances are you will, that by having an option to not do it, humans will gravitate towards not doing it. So I try to think about those writer, the, those articles I have to deliver and I try to make them compelling, but I try to think about them as, sort of a way to lead people into the funnel for my larger, bigger themed work. So I'm writing about growth hacking um, on, you know, on a website that's leading people to the book. I'm writing about media theory that's going to lead people to my other book. If I'm writing book about, or, uh, an article about philosophy or self-improvement or whatever, that's going to lead people to my book that's about philosophy. And that's sort of how I, I think about it. I, I don't think, I think, one, I have a lot to say and I get excited about the opportunity to have to do that. But two, it's about creating a system and sticking to that system if you want to produce good work. And you think, uh, and the blog posts or, or articles that you write are sometimes smaller parts or you know, inspirations for the, for the book you're going, experiments for the book you, you end up writing? Um, I, I don't think it's always like that. It's more like articles are a chance to experiment with an idea that you've got kicking around in your head. And, you know, ex- the experimentation is important feedback, but also as you get better as a writer, you start to sort of know what you're, you, you, start, you start to know how to lead your audience a little bit. Um, so I think it's a mix. I'd like to start writing longer, bigger, sort of stronger stuff, um, but then still have it rooted in some sort of, you know, connection or feedback with the audience. Interesting. Now, switching gears a little bit, because you've, you know, you previously wrote Trust Me, I'm Lying, uh, you know, about PR and, you know, journalism. Yeah. Um, and now you're doing a lot with helping authors and I think, believe also music clients, you know, mm-hmm. uh, do better. Do you see the uh, publishing industry similar to to music in that the creators are getting a lot savvier uh, and you know labels or publishers are having to respond quicker? Yeah, I mean, I basically see it both in publishing and in music and in really anything. Um, the people who control the money and the distribution um, are not good at the actual sales of that product. Like when you look at it, 
any successful music out, musician out there, when you look at basically any successful writer, author, um, company, it was made successful by the, the, the founders. Like they had to take on the burden of marketing and hustling and making their thing a success. Um, and so I come in when people need a translator for sort of how the current media system works. Like how, how does, in this attention economy, how do the people that move the levers of that economy, how do they operate? What do they look for? What do they want? Um, and, and that's what I, I'm sort of like a high level consultant in that regard most of the time with clients. So I do a lot of books, I do musicians, I do public figures, I do anything that's interesting to me personally um, that I think, you know, is good and people will want to, people will enjoy talking about provided, or, you know, if the author can, can, can do the work to get it in front of people. Do you think you're going to see more and more authors, you know, like your friend Tucker Max kind of creating their own, you know, establishments to release their own work? Yeah, I mean, look, I could have self-published the growth hacking book. Um, I could, I could self-publish my next book. Um, I think it's really about thinking. It's about doing the math on a case by case basis. Like, what are you writing this book for or this project for? Is it to make money from the specific project? Is it to set up a larger plan? You know, like Peter Thiel is doing a book that's coming out very soon, right? Mm -hmm. He's not doing a book to make money, so. Self-publishing it or doing it with a publisher, it's really it really has to do about it really has to do with the specific goals of the specific project. He has a message that he wants to get out into mainstream society. Self-publishing is not the best way to do that, um, and so it's really about thinking about it that way. So it's like if you if you've got a startup, um, what are you trying to accomplish with this startup? Are you trying to build a very successful business? Are you trying to be acquired? Are you trying to learn? Uh, and, and just sort of get some sort of success or learning under your belt. You know, these are these are goals that it's not that they contradict each other, but they do need to be prioritized. And a lot of people are afraid to ask themselves those questions, and so they don't really know what they want. And then they end up engaging in a strategy that that gets them further from what they what they would have wanted had they asked themselves those tough questions. How do you think about answering those tough questions for yourself? You know, with the you know you. You could kind of sit, double down on writing kind of epic books like like Robert Greene. You could double down on being an editor at large. Maybe you could start your own, you know, sort of media yeah. publication. How do you think about it for yourself? What do you, what are you looking to do? Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's no easy answer, right? It just right. takes a lot of work and a lot of introspection. For me, it's like okay, what you know, a lot of people want to make money, but they don't ask themselves why they want money, right? Most people don't want to be rich; they want to have a rich life. Ramit Sethi talks a lot about this. So it's, it's about thinking like when you envision yourself in the future and you are picturing your life, what does that life look like on a day-to-day -day basis? For me, it's sitting down and writing and thinking and, having, and interacting with an audience and seeing my work matter and influence people, right? So yes, I could probably create some sort of online publishing venture, but that would entail a lot of the things that I don't like about how my life is set up now, which is, let's say, managing people, dealing with organizational bullshit, um, you know, uh, long days at the office, feeling frenzied, feeling like you never have enough time. So, so for me, it's about there's many, I think people are capable of all sorts of amazing things. What you really want to ask yourself is, is not what I'm capable of doing, but what of those goals that I'm capable of doing actually will make me the happiest and most fulfilled person in this fairly limited amount of time that you have on earth. Mm -hmm. 
So do you uh, veer more towards writing epic books with an understanding how those books can obtain an audience? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I have a lucrative, I, I have my own company that does a lot of marketing. It makes, mm-hmm. it makes great, you know, it, it's very profitable. I get to work with clients I respect. It's, it's sort of the minimum effective dose of being a marketer. I get all the good stuff without the bad stuff. If I raised money, I hired a lot more employees, I, might, I would be working harder to accomplish essentially the same thing. Now, there's no question that I could build a company and then it could be acquired and then I wouldn't have to work or think about marketing ever again. But there's a gamble there. So that's something that I think about. For me personally, I find that writing fulfills me but doesn't totally stimulate me or get all my energy out. So some sort of mix of writing and then working with clients and companies and authors and other projects that I'm really excited about is the, is the right mix for me, at least at this time. But that could totally change. And I think part of what we're talking about here is, is being open to changes in what you want out of life. If I have a kid tomorrow, that might, you know, suddenly I might be more willing to tolerate certain things that I don't like about office life. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see yourself... Uh, let maybe like you know, friend uh, Tim Ferriss uh, advising companies, whether it's in, in you know things like the Next Vice, the Next Buzzfeed, or um, or even other you know other types of companies in tech. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I and I do advise a fair amount of startups, uh, and and I it's it's exciting, and I do a little bit of investing, mostly secondary market stuff, less like angel, but I've I've done a little of both. Um, for me, the the problem is it's like okay. Um, you know, you advise some company, it's very likely that the ex one, it's very likely that this company will never make money. Those are the odds. No, you know, sort of no matter how you look, no matter how optimistic you look at it. And then the other thing is, if it, if it is going to make money, it's going to make money very far down the future. So for me, because I can charge for my services and I get to pick more or less the clients I work with, there's sort of an opportunity cost for advising. So I'm pretty selective when I look at those companies because it's like, okay, this company which might have a 1% chance of succeeding, wants to offer me equity. On the other hand, this project, which will certainly succeed, wants to pay me twenty dollars to $50,000 for a few days' work. Um, that, that's, that's very hard to turn down. Um, and I realize, you know, like I'm playing a different game than most people. A lot of these people are trying to, you know, they want to be involved in Airbnb when it's a, you know, a two-person company because they know that could be worth, you know, I mean, Ferris was a pre-seed money investor in Uber. So, like, yeah. you know, that, that's hitting the lottery. But most people who play the lottery don't win. And uh, that's something that I think about. And then I also think, what do I, you know, I, I justify to myself, what do I want this money for anyway? But who knows? <laughs> that's interesting. Um, now, you identified in, in Trust Me, I'm Lying, this tension between, uh, you know, writing good stuff and having to, you know, the attention for bloggers to have to create all this content and just be pro, you know, over prolific with, with posts. Yeah. What do you, you know, with, uh, a 16's recent investment in Buzzfeed, there's been some controversy, whether they're kind of stimulating or encouraging that type of journalism, you know, but at the same time, Buzzfeed is doing this more long form stuff. Sure. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think Buzzfeed is really interesting because Jonah Preddy is a very smart person. I think, you know, there was a great video that was sort of comparing, uh, Jonah Peretti to the Wolf of Wall Street, right? Yeah. Where basically these people, they sort of figure out a, a, a kink in the system and then they apply a lot of really smart time and energy and, and ambition to that problem and they exploit the crap out of it and, and it makes them very wealthy. You know, I, BuzzFeed, 
BuzzFeed, you know, love, loves to talk about its amazing journalism enterprises and, and its long form and all that. But I mean, look, recently they had to delete 5,000 articles that didn't meet their own standard. I mean, just 5,000 articles across a site is a lot. To, to have that many that, that violate your own standards, to me, is just incalculably large. And so I, I look at these companies and I, I see why, as businesses, they make a lot of sense. I'm just also able, I think, as a reader and a writer to step back and say, what does this mean for society? What does this mean for life? You know, the media is, is a private business and people are free to act how they want. But, it, but information also, you could argue, is a, is a natural resource, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's in the public trust in the way that water or air or, um, you know, water or air is or, or the markets are or the radio waves are. And so I, I, I tend to be um, very suspicious and I hold these publishers to a very high standard when I see them exploiting something that belongs to all of us to profit exclusively for themselves and worse, you know, making the world uh, uh, a more unpleasant place to live. Is there anyone who, who's, doing it, who's doing it right, in your opinion, and, and you is making money? Yeah, I mean, uh, I like The Atlantic, actually. Um, I like Andrew Sullivan. I like ta Coates at The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a big Felix Salmon fan. I tend to follow individual voices who are seemingly motivated by some sort of desire for truth or honesty or accuracy more than I am into specific publications because the reality is everyone from the New York Times to Huffington Post to Gawker are all responding to the same market incentives that have been created with this CPM-driven revenue model. And is that, you know, with the recent investment in Vice, is that, is that moving more towards video? Yeah, but video is still on a CPM basis, and it, it's still a per-click basis, right? Like, nobody is subscribing or paying for this content. Um, and that creates a world in which people sort of slum for page views. I, I, I think Vice is great. And I think, you know, it's become a very profitable business very quickly because people are seeing it as a potential to succeed the way that traditional media companies have. You know, they have a deal with HBO that pays them money based on a subscriber fee. They have a YouTube channel which has subscribers that, that, that you know, sells branded content. The majority of Vice's money is not coming from, you know, CPM revenue. Uh, or it probably won't in the future. And that's what's setting them up to, I think, be a $3 billion or a $5 billion company versus the Huffington Post, which sold for $300 million. Mm-hmm. Do you think there should be more regulations around uh, you know, journalism? Or should there, is there more of a room for nonprofits? To uh, I, mean, I mean, I think, there's, I think this is a complicated problem with a lot of underlying factors. And I don't think there's one magical solution. Um, but I think it's some sort of combination of a higher percentage of people paying for the news, um, some sort of higher, or, sorry, lowered, I guess, standard for what constitutes libel. Like right now, um, you know, we define libel and slander as a society as requiring malicious intent. Well, perhaps in a, in a world where publishing is so much more effortless, negligence needs to be the standard or, or, or um, you know, flagrant negligence of some kind. Um, and then, and then lastly, I think, I think it's cultural regulation, right? It, I don't, I don't click upworthy links because I know they manipulate me. And I think in the future, we're going to start to see the digital divide being the people who know what's BS on the internet and people who fall for it. And that's going to have some political ramifications 
but I, but I think, you know, shaming these people who are massive hypocrites, who are exploitative, who churn out crap on a day-to-day basis, will go a long way to raising the standards of journalism. As I talk about, and trust me, I'm lying, this, the, the situation today is very reminiscent of where we were 100, 120 years ago, and that changed because society demanded that it change. Interesting. Uh, do you, what do you think about you know, uh, someone like Vox, uh, you know, where it's a writer and a, and a business person, or someone who understands marketing, uh, teaming up? Well, look, I think the problem with, with Vox is it pretends to be some sort of, and I've written about this for, I have, an, I have a column on media for The Observer, um, you know, they, they pretend that they care about, uh, you know, truth and explaining complicated situations like Gaza or Syria. And then really it's like, hey, what happened in that Beyonce, Jay-Z, you know, uh, Jay-Z video? And they're really trolling for pages. They've got infinite scroll. They've got all these, they've got all the same tools that all the other manipulative publishers are using. Um, you've got 538 doing, you know, stuff about burritos. These are not... You know, it's very easy to, to have these high-minded ideals, but what matters is that you actually live and die by them, that you, that you produce content that actually is valuable, not something that will do good on the Facebook algorithm, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Moving, uh, I guess, switching, switching gears a little bit, you, you've written a ton, you know, in your blog and, and you know, Obstacles as a Way about the Stoics. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Seneca in particular, and I've also read Letters to Modern Stoics that was fascinating, what do you think people, you know, the Stoics and Seneca in particular, what would they be doing in the 21st, in, you know, in today? Well, it's interesting. I just read this fascinating biography of Seneca called Dying Every Day. And I'm forgetting the author's name, but it's an amazing book. And basically, Seneca is this fascinating historical figure in that he was, on the one hand, a political advisor uh, at the highest levels. He's just sort of a, an insider like a Karl Rove or, or a David Axelrod. And then on the other hand, he was the private tutor because he was so smart to the, the prince or the king or the president or whatever you want to do it, Nero. And then on the other hand, he was this incredibly famous playwright and author in his own lifetime. And so he was this sort of complicated figure who had his hands in a lot of things. And those things kind of contradict each other, right? How do you, how do you balance you know, being a stoic philosopher and then also advising one of the most corrupt and sociopathic Roman emperors to ever live. Um, and so I, I think Seneca, I, I like Seneca because I think we're all complicated people and we all kind of have that duality, right? Um, you know, Elon Musk is this genius inventor who's clearly able to empathize with customers and see businesses far ahead of people. And then you read his articles and you can tell he's like a very vain, self-absorbed, highly sensitive individual who kind of seems like he's on the verge of having a breakdown every two seconds, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's really interesting. I think we're all a lot more complicated than the media wants to allow or that history ever, you know, wants to allow. And so with with Seneca, I think you probably fit in quite well today. You probably be successful and maybe you'd be an entrepreneur, maybe you'd be an investor, you'd be a writer, uh, maybe he would be a, an executive, maybe he'd be a politician. Um, so, so Seneca, I, I think, is both uniquely historical and uniquely modern figure. And that's why his writing resonates with people. I mean, that's why, um, that's why I love it. That's why people like Tim Ferriss love it. That's why, you know, people for, for literally thousands of years now have turned to his writing in difficult times because he wasn't just writing it in theory. He lived a difficult life. I mean, he tutored Nero, and then Nero forced him to commit suicide, um, along with his wife. So 
it wasn't it wasn't by any means a, a cushy life. It was stressful and difficult and 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 unnerving and scary. And that's reflected in his writing. But Seneca also spent a lot of time, you know, alone, where he was able to to think about these thoughts and, in in some ways, seemed to live a little bit slower when when he was able to, without distractions. Obviously, do you think he would have, uh, you know, not taken to, to things like Twitter or you know been successful, so then he could kind of retreat? Um, and do you do you kind of have a, a, a you know fantasy where you can you know stop writing some of these articles and just really focus on on long form stuff and take things a little bit slower? How, how do you think about that? Well, look, I think Seneca, from from what I've read, it was a was well adapted, you know, using the tools that were publicly available to him. He writes letters to a Stoic, like his his letters to a friend. These were letters that were intended for publication, right? So he's taking advantage of the public information sort of highways at that time to to spread and influence people. Um, and his plays have spread, and you know, there's there's even a quote from Seneca graffitied on one of the walls at um, at Pompeii. And so um, I think he would take advantage of these tools just like anyone would, just like I do or, or any successful author probably should. But would he allow them to rule and rule his life? Would they allow him to distract himself from ever thinking deeply? Probably not. And for me, it's, it's you know, I try not to check my email or Twitter when I wake up in the morning. I try to give myself some time for reflection. And I try to engage in exercise that takes me away from my phone, that takes me away from the computer. Um, and, and I do think it's important as a person, you've got, if you get so focused with the, the bustle of what's right in front of you or the immediate present, you don't think about the bigger picture and then you don't create work that lasts. So I certainly think about limiting my obligations so I can think big picture. But, you know, the, to sort of tie this back to where we started, if you go off in a cave and you write something that you think is amazing and can change the world, but has not been, you know, forged under the crucible of feedback and and market reaction if you're wrong it's going to be catastrophic failure right it's there's a chance that no one will care that you just went totally off the reservation and i don't think that accomplishes anything either yeah it's interesting that you know when you think about writing your own book uh you know the more audience feedback you get it typically it becomes a better book it's it's not hindered by other people giving constructive feedback whereas on a macro scale it seems that the more journalism is under pressure, this is very simplistic, but the more journalism is yeah. under pressure from the market, it seems that the quality goes down. Well, it's about short-term versus long-term incentives and feedback, right? So, like, there's that line from Henry Ford where he said, if I'd listened to my customers, I would have given them uh, a faster horse, right. right? But he didn't say, oh, everyone is super satisfied with uh, a horse or these crappy cars, I'm just going to make that. You know what I mean? Like, he, and he didn't make a spaceship. Like, he, you, you take feedback... Like when I write, I'm not saying like, oh, this was popular. I must turn this into a thing. I'm really asking myself, what are people responding to? Why are they responding to it? Is this, does this have the legs to be a bigger thing? So the problem with journalism is that it's not about feedback. It's about, you know, sort of yes or no binary good, bad in a misleading way. Like I I connect this to... At certain times in our military history, we've used body count as a metric of success in war, right? And those are usually the wars that we lose and the wars that go that that involve you know, terrible human rights violations. Um, you know, growth hackers talk about vanity metrics. Page views are a vanity metric. Anything can be game to get a lot of page views. What matters is 
the, some of the more soft variables, you know, did people actually read this article? Did they take to comment on this article? Did it enhance the brand? Did it lock up this person as a long-term reader in some way? Would they have paid for the article if they had the ability? Those are the metrics that are harder to measure, but really are giving you a sense of whether you're chasing the right things. Like, so, like, look, I'm, I'm an editor at Betabee, and a writer could write a story now and get no traffic. But if it's really good, maybe over time it does 100 pages every day for the next 10 years, that starts to add up and it was a huge success. But that writer, because they looked at the immediate short-term feedback of how it did, is going to have judged that post a failure. And I think that's what sort of led journalism astray, is the short-term immediate feedback to the exclusion of all other metrics of quality. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like each other, they're holding each other hostage. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's, it's a negative feedback loop is basically what it is. Crappy content does well, so you get more crappy content. All you make is crappy content, then you, have, then you do something good and your audience doesn't know what to do with it and they're suddenly, you know, oh, people don't want good stuff. And that's not true. The market for good stuff is infinite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting, especially as you know, people like Mark Andreessen invest more and more with the thesis that you know, more and more people are going to be reading news all across the world, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, with, with BuzzFeed, who's going to buy BuzzFeed, right? That's the question. And if at a certain point all the bot, like the reason you saw the growth in all these companies is that there was a market for them to be acquired uh, because people wanted the growth and the buzz and the, the whatever and the, the traffic. But now that the market's a little bit more mature, these companies are going to have to give it. Are going to have to become profitable revenue-producing businesses, self-sustaining, profitable businesses. And can BuzzFeed do that with the kind of content it turns out? Maybe not. That's going to be a rude awakening for a lot of these sites. I think. If you were working, you know, if you were strategizing with BuzzFeed, how would you think about assuming they're trying to, you know, rebrand and do more long-form stuff? How would you think about that? Can they well, do I don't both? necessarily. I, I'm not like a fetishist just for long things. Right. Like yeah, yeah. just because it's long doesn't mean it's good. But I think I would say I, I, I think the first strategic choice that they're going to have to make is well, one, they pretend they're a technology company, which they're obviously not. But two, is BuzzFeed supposed to be a an actual business, or is it just an acquisition target, and therefore needs to acquire growth at all costs? And I think that is something that only they can answer. But if, if it's going to be like, look, do you think do you think BuzzFeed is going to be here in a hundred years? Do you think they're building a brand that's that's so valuable and so trusted that it's going to be here in a hundred years? Are they making the decisions uh, for it to have that kind of longevity? I I don't think so. Um, and yet, the New York Times makes literally billions of dollars a year in revenue. Um, and so why are companies trying to be more like BuzzFeed and not more like the New York Times? Yeah, no, these, these are all good thoughts. And a couple more topics I want to touch before, yeah. before you leave. One, you touched on this a little bit with, in the Tim podcast, uh, friendships. You talked about you have you know, a couple close friends that don't, kind of don't have anything to do with what you're currently doing. But how do you think about, uh, and I know you've read a Montaigne a, a bunch, friendships in, yeah. in your own life and, and the role of friends. Do you do a lot of one-on-one -on -one time? Do you do a lot of trips? I know you keep people, you know, abreast with your reading newsletter. How, how do you think about? Because at any, you know, every day, a ton of people are reaching out to you, and you can't, yeah. you can't reach out to a certain few. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of my friends are doing the same things as me, so I see them a lot, and so it's like sort of business and pleasure mixing together, and that's nice. 
But I also, I don't know, but like, look, part of the reason I live in the South, I, I lived in New Orleans for a while, now I live in Texas, um, is because it's, there are less people like me and I'm interacting with people who I think are interesting and cool, uh, but, but live very different lives and are not obsessed with Twitter and they keep you sort of grounded and they, I think they represent another part of life that people like us in technology and media can, can sort of forget about. We can forget that it exists. Um, and, and so for me, um, that part of my life is very important. Um, you know, I, I've got a little bit of property, I've got some animals. I, I, I live a life that allows me to, 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 I, I don't know, be a normal person a little bit. And I think that's increasingly difficult to do in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York, not just because it's financially difficult, but because all these people are competing with each other all the time. They're trying to one up each other all the time. So on a, on a friendship basis, I, you know, I like to have, uh, I, I, I don't know. I like to have people over my house, hang out, talk, do whatever. Um, and I like to ideally not talk about work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I spent the last couple of years in Detroit where also the, the pace is much slower. Oh, that's great. And coming to San Francisco, I'm, you know, I'm excited all the time and I'm meeting inspiring people, but it's a, it's a bit different uh, in terms of... Uh, well, look, when you're in Detroit, you see things that are happening every day in San Francisco that would be great to go to, but you don't sweat them because you're in Detroit, right? <laughs> yep. But when you're in San Francisco, you feel like you have to go to those things. You don't have to, but you feel like you do. And that busy trap becomes sort of a prison of our own making. Like what I really like about Austin is it's just busy enough that a lot of people are in town uh, on a fairly regular basis, but not busy enough that I'm constantly uh, besieged with invitations or events or obligations that I would feel bad turning down. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, definitely follow James Altucher. Say no, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, right. And ideally, put yourself in a position where you don't have to say no all the time because it's you're not even asked. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Another, another thing I wanted to ask you, uh, you, you've you know for a long time you've had the reading newsletter for how many years years now? Seven, I think. Seven. Yeah. I mean, I get this a lot in San Francisco where I feel like I have to defend the value of reading. I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous, but sure. people are asking, you know, can I just uh, you know, read a blog post, and that's for technical information. And if I want to improve my em- empathetic skills, can I just watch a movie? You know, everyone's trying to take the shortcut out. How do you? And it seems kind of silly to say, but uh, you know, definitely a lot of people are looking for justifications to 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 be reading to to say that it's worth it. How do you you know uh, think about that? Yeah, look, what I say is for the last three thousand years. Smart people have been doing one thing. Smart and successful people have been doing one thing more regularly than any other thing, and that's reading lots of books. Um, I think it's the height of hubris and ego to think that because of some minor technological change, those books are no longer important or valuable, and that time spent reading is time wasted. Um, more importantly, the, because of that tradition, the smartest thoughts of the smartest people who have lived have been codified and translated and put into book form. And you can, like, there's a, there's a great line from, uh, from Bismarck or, yeah, I think it's Bismarck where he says like, you know, any fool can learn from experience. I prefer to learn from the experience of others. Well, that's what books are. Books are the collective human experience. Literally millions and millions of people have been writing their thoughts down in these books they, and, and cumulatively getting better each time they do so. 
And uh, I just think you're an idiot if you're, if you're going to be willfully ignorant of all of that because now you can get blog posts on the internet for free or you can listen to pod. <laughs> look, look, podcasts are great, but um, chances, the chances of people listening to the podcast that we are listening, that, that most of us listen to now, 100 years ago or 1,000 years from now, probably pretty low. The chances of people still reading Seneca 500 years from now, probably pretty high because he's already been doing it for two millennia. Mm -hmm. So that's how you sort of want to think about these things, at least in my view. And I, I get that there's people who can't read because of dyslexic or, you know, they prefer other things or whatever. Look, find your own way. But to think that you're too good for books or, or that you're too tech savvy for books is, is almost certainly uh, a ridiculous self-destructive impulse. And in terms of learning, you, you wrote a great piece uh, in your Observer, I think, about uh, you know how to think about college. Was that in the Observer? Yeah, I think so. How? Uh, what would you like to see more from from institutions? You know, I don't know if you've been following Minerva or some of the other, you know these other these other institutions in terms of allowing people to to you know take ownership over their own learning. Yeah. Um, well, look, I'm a college dropout, so I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I've also worked with a lot of sort of technology companies in that regard. Creative Live is one of my clients. I think they're a really interesting uh, sort of tech education company. And, and, you know, personally, I love books, and I think you can learn basically anything you learn in college in books and your own reading. But the reality is part of the reason that college works is because you pay a lot of money, and then you then feel obligated to get value out of that money you've spent. And you have a four-year period where you have to squeeze a lot of it in. And so those pressures are, are beneficial and they force people to be disciplined and get their shit together, so to speak. Um, it, I think it's hard to replicate that digitally and voluntarily. Um, but should college cost $50,000 a year? Probably not. And the fact that it costs $50,000 a year, is it not part of some sort of giant you know, Ponzi pyramid scheme uh, designed to exploit people who, who just want a good life for their kids? Um, so I think if you're going to college and you're not coupling that with sort of taking charge of your own education, you're selling yourself short. If you think that going to college is going to automatically secure you an amazing job, you're probably wrong and you're going to be really disappointed. And I think finally, um, if colleges think that what they provide is sufficient, they are also being dishonest. So, you know, for me, I think I went to two, I had two years of college. It was great. And then I apprenticed under a bunch of really smart people who made me better. That's what I think some sort of ideal model is. And even going earlier than that, were you engaged in high school? Uh, I mean, I think I was kind of just a regular high school student. I read a lot, but I wasn't like, I didn't start this until I got to college. And frankly, I think I got to college expecting it to be this magical place where people loved books and everything was awesome. And it wasn't. And then I said, okay, well... I'm going to have to change this if I want it to be different for myself. Uh, some people who kind of critique uh, homeschool methods, you know, even before college or, or self-learning, say that there is some advantage to uh, just throwing, getting thrown in in like the social jungle of people. <laughs> Do you agree with that? I mean, look, I get a lot of emails from people who want to drop out of college. And usually the first question I, I ask is, do you want to drop out of college or are you failing out of college? And if they're failing out of college, I say there's no way you should drop out because college is a good metaphor for life. And if you couldn't figure out how to master and game this system, chances are you're going to be rudely awakened at your first office job. 
or the first time you pitch investors or the first time you have to deal with employees, um, if you've sheltered yourself from these things and now you don't know how to manage it, what makes you think you're magically going to learn when the stakes are a lot higher? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Knowing what you know now, like, would you wish you had even more time before, like dropped out of high school and started apprenticing way earlier? No, no, no. I almost wish that I just gotten more out of college while I was there. Got it. Um, But I I think I don't think I would. I mean, look, I can't do it differently, even if I wanted to. But I'm pretty happy with how I did it. Um, I just wasted a lot of time taking the same classes in college that I'd already taken in high school to meet like general ed requirements, and that was a waste of time. I wish I just sat in on other lectures and learned from more smart people. And also something you wrote about in that piece is when you drop out, there's just this gulf of difference between you, know, you and your peers and you know, something that's kind of similar is people who succeed very early uh, are kind of don't have a lot of time for social experimentation in terms of like you know, dating or just having fun or you know, kind of engaging with different types of people. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, right now, here's a great way to, to sort of illustrate that. If Right now, if a college student emailed you and asked you, gave you a huge long list of questions that they had about life, no matter how busy you are, you'd probably take a stab at answering them. If some random guy, specifically a guy who was like older than you, was like, hey, Eric, I have all these questions for you. Uh, I need you to answer them. You'd be like, who do you think you are? Why am I going to do this for you, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that status as a student is a, an advantage that most students are not aware of. And so they drop out of college or they... They take it for granted, and then they enter the real world, and then they're like, everyone is so mean to me. Why is everyone being so mean? And it's like, they're not being mean. You're just competition now. Uh, Ryan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for taking the time. What's, uh, what's next for you, and where can people find your work? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at, at Ryan Holiday. Uh, I'm writing a new book, which should be cool. I'm not really talking about it, but I'm writing a new book. And then, you know, I, I have a media column at beta.com, which is the tech arm of the New York Observer. And then I have, uh, I write for Thought Catalog and I write on my own site. And then you can get the reading recommendations on my site as well, which is ryanholiday.net. Cool. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really cool, man. 